you to turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning. We're going to look at verses 31 through 34. Romans 8. I um, was talking with a, a new believer this week, and he, he made this observation to me. He, he was sharing his delight in Christ and his concern about the long part of the race. Doing good in the sprint, doing good in the, you know, the 400 meter, but what about the marathon that is the Christian life? Uh, and here's what he said, and these words just struck me. He said, what if he really tests me? What if God really puts me to the test? And I know what he meant. What he meant was, will I survive that? Will I be okay if God should take the good circumstances of my life and let them turn a little dark, a little cloudy? Will I remain faithful to him in times that are good and times that are bad? How does my future look? That's the question that was being asked in that observation. I think all of us from time to time in our Christian life wonder, will we be there long haul down the road for the glory of God? I grew up in a uh, church that had a seminary. I grew up watching young men go off to Bible college and then off to seminary and then into ministry. And I have to be very honest with you and say that the statistics are somewhere around 10 to 20% of people that start on the course towards ministry actually end up in ministry. And the reasons are various, but some of them are very sad. I have had close personal friends pushed out of ministry because of seriously flawed choices. I was talking with a friend of mine who was the financial administrator at my home church. He told me of a church that he had visited in our area. Okay, that means New Jersey, okay? So don't try to, don't try to figure this out, okay? He said, oh, I was just up in, in your area visiting with the church. And I said, what were you doing there? He said, their pastor embezzled the church. And it was the second pastor in a row that did that. Now, every pastor goes into ministry thinking, that will not happen to me. And every person that gets married gets married thinking, I will never be the one who is unfaithful. And every person that walks an aisle or rededicates their heart to Christ sitting in, the, in, in, in their chair thinks, I, this is for real this time. But we all know the struggle with the fears that intimidate us. I believe what often is the voice of the evil one who wants to destabilize Christians, make them weak, and then as a result, vulnerable. And that fear begins to distract and discourage and pull aside from a walk of faith. This text that we're studying is a promise about God's plan to bring every son and daughter of his to glory through the work of Jesus Christ. We've covered that for the last few weeks, verses 28 through 30. The God who works all things together for the good of those who love him with the ultimate goal of their becoming everything that God intended for them to become through his son, Jesus Christ. That's God's plan. But as we live here, we wrestle with the, the between the promise and the fulfillment of it. Between what is not yet to come, that is the future glory, and the already that we're experiencing in Christ today. Will the not yet, the promise of fulfillment, actually come to completion? 
It's a question that bangs around in our minds. Will what God has begun in me actually come to a place of completion? Can my life experience progress? Will I make it to the end? Will I be faithful if God allows the carpet to be pulled out from under the feet of my life? Will I remain faithful? What if he tests you? What if he tests you? The result of those questions is a sense of fear that tends to hang out in the minds of those that are seeking to follow Christ in a, in a way that glorifies him and honors his name. Now, in verse 31, following verse 30, this glorious promise, those that he called, he also justified, and those that he justified, he also glorified. So our end product in Christ is already a completed, done deal in the eyes of God. Paul then in verse 31 says this, he says, what then shall we say in response to this? And the, this in the context is this glorious promise about God's purpose that is already fate complete in his mind. It is already a done deal that everyone who is called by the grace of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, they have been justified in the present and have the hope of ultimate glorification by God. And God's promise is this, I will use all things in your life to achieve that end and goal and purpose. That is my plan for you. So when we sang the song, the question comes up, why should I dwell in fear? But the truth is that a lot of us do. And what I want us to do this morning from this text, 31 to 34, talk back to the fear. Okay, the fear is real. You see people fall around you, you see marriages blow apart that you never, who would have ever thought that that could happen to them. And you wonder, it throws a question up in your mind, and the evil one will badger you with that. That could, will be you. And that thought bangs around you wonder, how can we stand firm until Christ comes for his glory and be faithful to the end? Okay, that's the question I want to answer from this text. And I think this text offers us four affirmations, or if you will, truth claims, that we speak to the fear that comes as we navigate life in a finished or in a fallen world. What Paul does in verse 31 through 39 is he launches into a celebration that is based upon the gospel of God's saving grace from chapter 1 through chapter 8 of Romans. It is for those who have experienced the glorious work of God through Jesus Christ that these promises come. And the way they are couched is in the form of a question and then a statement. Verse 31. What shall we say then in response to this, to the glorious gospel and the perfect plan of God for the redeemed? If God is for us, who can be against us? All right, if God is for us, who can be against us? Here's the first promise. God's promise is this. I will protect you. I will protect you. Oh, the children, sorry. People are back there worshiping with waving hands during the... Never had that happen before. What do I do? Sorry about that. Okay, so the first promise is God will protect us. Couched in a question, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, at first blush, it seems that the question or that the statement raises a question about the certainty of ultimately being glorified according to the plan of God. If he had asked, who is against us, the result and answer to the question would be very simple. 
And the truth is, there could be many answers to the question, who can be against us? Well, there are many. Let me give you a few. Uh, the world can be against us. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Paul says, a great and effectual door is open to us, but there are many opponents. A great and effectual door for the gospel is there to take it and to share it with the fallen world around us, but there are many opponents. Paul knew that the world stood against the proclamation of the gospel. The devil is also against us. Ephesians 6 and verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Bottom line is this. As a Christian, you live an opposed life. You do not live in a world that embraces your statements about the truth of the love of Christ for fallen sinners, i.e. Brit Hume, Fox News correspondent, who dared to say that Tiger Woods could find hope in the blood of his Savior. Problem, he said it in the public media. I love Brit Hume's response. He said, it's just what I believe. It's what I found. It's just my experience. And we live in a world that some said we should aim, quote, darts of derision at him. Because when you speak the name of Christ, you do not live in a world that's going to embrace you and say, I'm so happy and joyful that you're sharing your faith with me and telling me that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. I appreciate it so very much. No, the response is, how dare you? How dare Brit Hume assume that Jesus Christ is an adequate Savior for Tiger Woods and say it in public? How dare he say that? We experience opposition in the proclamation of our faith. We also have the fear of death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. The last enemy, the last opponent to be destroyed is death. And at times, we as believers face the opposition from within our own selves. The doubt the fear that haunts us in our life at times. Here's what Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, the question becomes this. Who can say God is for us? Well, the text, I think, makes it clear. Not everybody can say God is for us because James 4 says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those that have been redeemed and forgiven by the grace of God experience His strong and full support in their daily life. Those who can say God is for them and therefore should have hope in the protection of God in their daily life are those who can say the words of Psalm 23 personally. The Lord is. And the next word is the key to the whole psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Because, folks, he is not everyone's shepherd. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There is a distinct group of people who experience the fatherly protection of God upon his children. He pours it out on them with great love, and the goal of it is to produce in the heart of believers not arrogance, but a sheer sense of confidence that if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer to the question is this. Everybody. But no one effectively. And the questions will flow in that kind of a statement. A strong, bold assertion. If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? Who can effectively overwhelm the heart of a believer that is standing strong in the power of God? Isn't that exactly what David faces when he goes out onto the battlefield to face Goliath as a young man and Goliath in derision laughs at David? You dog? You come to me with the sling and stones? And David is undaunted. Probably like this, but he's undaunted. He's got a message to deliver. Fear, but he's going to speak truth in the face of fear. He says, you come to me with sword and spear. You come to me with the conventional instruments of war. I come to you in the name of God. Right? I mean, what is he saying? I'm scared to death. I don't know what I'm doing out here. And yes, I do only have a sling and stones. Thank you. But I come in the name of the Lord. Didn't the psalmist say it this way? Some trust in chariots. Some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Paul's response to that is, if God is for us, who can effectively thwart the purpose of God in the lives of those that he has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified? Paul's response to that statement is, if God is for me like that, then bring it on. He's like, then bring it on. Because we can stand, not in our own strength, not in arrogance, but in a God-glorifying confidence that the one who is for us is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond whatever we may need, ask, or think. Verse 32 leads us into the next statement. This is the heart of the gospel. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he... With him, graciously give us, and the next phrase is the key to this whole passage. Won't he graciously give us all things? Now go back to verse 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Won't he graciously give us all things? Verse 39, I believe it is. In all these things, what are we? We're supra conquerors. We are more than conquerors. What's the promise in this text? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up, won't he with him freely and graciously give us all things? I think the promise is very simply put like this. God, and this should be the the confident confession of every Christian, God will provide for me. Whatever needs may come, I need to rest in the fact that God will provide for me. Once again, the promise for this special provision and care is directed towards those who God knows and who have repented of their sin and been justified and have the hope of glorification. It's for them who have confessed simple saving faith in Christ. Satan's greatest tactic, in light of the promise God will provide for us, his greatest tactic, his greatest tool to get Christians off track is to get you to doubt the goodness of your creator. That seed of doubt that he sows in the minds and hearts of believers is the essence of all struggles that we face and it is the essence of all temptations that we experience. We doubt the goodness of God. He said, Tim, how do you know that? Go back to the original temptation, Genesis chapter 3. When Satan wanted to draw Adam and Eve out of a status of righteousness into sinfulness and rebellion against God, he called them to question 
the goodness of God? Did God really say? Isn't God holding out on you? And they took the bait, doubted the goodness of God, and the rest is really history. What Satan wants you to believe is that God won't provide for you. Therefore, you should do whatever pragmatically you need to do to be sure that all of your needs, wants, desires are met. And that path will lead you into complete devastation and sin. Because what Satan wants you to believe is that life is about you, about your moral, sexual happiness. Therefore, if you find it outside of the biblical boundaries, that's okay. Satan wants you to believe that your security and, and, and joy in your life is based upon possessions. And if you have to fudge a little bit on your taxes to get that, that's okay. Because God is good, but He's not that good. He wants you to doubt that God will meet your needs. And when you doubt that God will meet your needs, everything comes into the realm of possibility. Paul's simple and clear affirmation is God will provide for us. Here's the question. How can we be sure and not doubt that God will supply all of our needs? And here's what Paul does. Paul argues from a greater truth to a lesser truth. Watch what he does. And he starts out here. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Okay, that's the greatest truth that the scriptures set forth. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Romans 5.8, God showed his love to us in this. He sent his only son to be the redeeming sacrifice for our sin. He has provided the greatest need that you will ever have. Therefore, the implication in the text is, how will he not, through Christ, who now is the channel of the blessing of God for everyone who trusts him, how will he not, through him, freely, and the idea is beautiful, it's graciously, freely, abundantly, extensively, give us all things. If he didn't keep his son from you, but gave him up for you so that you could become his child. Can't you assume that he knows about the need that's haunting your mind this morning as you sit in this service, that's keeping you from being able to worship, that's keeping you from being able to focus on the truth of God's word? Can he take care of those things? He didn't spare his own son. He didn't withhold this great and glorious gift. Paul points to the cross to what God has already done from the greater to the lesser. Octavius Winlow, Winslow said it this way. He said, who delivered Jesus to die? And the answers could be many. He said, it was not Judas for money. It was not Pilate for fear. It was not the Jews for envy, but the love of the Father and the Son, His own life. Here's what Jesus said. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Folks, that's how much he loves you. And if he was willing to lay down his life, the greatest, what situation in your life do you think you are facing that he cannot provide for? Or do you think that he is reluctant to provide for? Because clearly that's the nature of the argument here. If he gave his son, 
Can't you then as a result trust him for these lesser things? If he gave his son to pay the price for your sin, can't you trust him with your children? If he paid the price for your sin through his blood sacrifice, can't you trust him with your situation or work by telling the truth? By standing up to a Christian friend? By saying, I can't watch this. Or I can't do this. Can't you trust him to provide a complete satisfaction in your life without any reluctance whatsoever? Because he for you has provided his son. What is the extent of God's provision in this text? It says all things freely, lavishly, and abundantly. Paul captures this later in Philippians 4 and verse 19, and most of you know this verse. He says, but my God shall supply all your needs. <laughs> now think about this. He will supply all your needs. Now, that's okay. If I said to you, if you came to me and you said, I'm having financial problems, and I said, look, I will take everything I have, and I will... <laughs> I'll put it at your disposal and you can use it to meet your needs. Okay, hopefully you wouldn't be deeply encouraged. Okay? But if God says through Paul, my God shall supply all of my needs. And here, here's the context. Paul received a gift from the church in Philippi. The book of Philippians is a thank you note saying, hey, thank you for the material support that you gave me in ministry. But I want you to know something. And it's, it, the verses are immediate. 18, thank you for the gift. 19, but my God shall supply all your needs. What is he saying? Your life in Christ just cost you. You had to send a gift to me out of your poverty. You sent a gift to help me in prison. And I want you to know that Father in heaven has promised that he will meet all your needs according to, Paul says, his riches in glory in Christ. Folks, that's the measure of God's storehouse out of which he pours his needed blessings into our life. Not according to our timing, not when we want it, but when it is needed. The pastor I grew up under used to say this. He used to say, God is seldom early, but he is never late. You find that to be true in your life? He is seldom early. He will let you, he'll push you out there a long way. And that'll show up. And when you're being pushed out there, you know what you're doing? You're tempted to doubt the goodness of God. And God is saying, just wait, wait, wait. And then he pours his blessing in. And the watching world around you see that your joy is dependent upon God's provision in your life. And that is the best way to live. When the source of your happiness and contentment and joy is that God will meet our needs the message that every father should share with his family, that every parent should share with their child. You can trust God. It's what Paul shares with the church in Philippi. You've sacrificed to meet my needs, but my God shall supply every one of your needs according to his glorious riches that are displayed profoundly on the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 6, Jesus tweaks out this discussion a little bit. He says to his disciples, don't worry. And remember, every time God says, don't do something, he's indicating that I have a tendency to do it. And he's anticipating my negative tendency and confronting it. He says, do not worry. And then Jesus says, look at the birds of the field. He says, they don't toil. They don't work hard. They don't sow seed. They don't plant. They don't plant a harvest. They don't store harvest. He says, your Father in heaven takes care of them. He meets their every need. 
And then he looks at his disciples and he says, aren't you more valuable than these? I mean, the birds are great. Not one falls to the ground without God knowing. Not one. But the argument now is from the lesser to the greater. And in this case, the greater is if he has that kind of concern for nature, which he created, how much more will he care for his children that he has redeemed? And then he says to them, look at the flowers of the field. The wind blows, they toil and spin. It's cut up and it's tossed into the fire. Your father has given them a covering that is glorious. Solomon in all of his glory wasn't clothed like those flowers. Now, if he cares, Jesus says, for the grass of the field, if he provides for that, the nutrients and the sunlight, everything that is needed, if he provides for them, argument from lesser to the greater, won't he take care of you? Do you see the argument? Paul's argument is the reverse. He does the greater, he'll take care of you. He does the lesser for the lesser. He'll take care of you. He surrounds you with promises of his loving care and concern. I've learned something as a married man, and that is this. My wife is never reluctant to ask me for $20. Argument from the greater to the lesser. If you commit it to me in marriage, why should I be afraid to ask him for 20 bucks? I've learned something as a father. My children are never nervous about asking me for money. <laughs> Argument is from the greater to the lesser. In their mind, what they're thinking is this. He loves me. He tells me that he loves me. He's promised to meet all my needs, and this may not be a need, but I'm going to push the envelope a little bit and ask. They're, my daughters are just, they're unabashed. Why? Now, I don't, if, if they've walked up to any of you in this church, any of you dads that, you know, my daughters are friends with your daughters, and they come to you and say, hey, could you give me 20 bucks? I bet they'd be really sheepish and reluctant, I hope. <laughs> but when they come to me, they're not that way. You know why? Because they have confidence that if they have a need, their dad, who is their father, who loves them greater, will certainly take care of the lesser. And that's the argument they usually use to get the money out of you. Oh, come on, dad, this is nothing. Okay? Greater to the lesser. If I love them as my daughters, if I committed to my wife as my wife for life, then she should have no concern about coming to me to meet her needs. That's exactly what God is saying. If I have bound you in an eternal covenant that was established before the foundation of the world and that reaches into the eternal heavens in ultimate glorification, can't you trust me today? That's what he's saying. If I covered you from the past and I've got your future completely covered, trust me. He who did not spare his own son in eternity past, but gave him up for us. And this is the key phrase in these four verses. The for us is, a, in, in the Greek we call it the dative of advantage. Given for the benefit of these objects. He gave his son for us. Will he not freely give us for our benefit all things? Folks, we need to learn what it is to rest in the glorious and profound provision of God. We sung a song when I was a kid. I'm going to end with reading this to you this morning. When I was a kid, we sung a song. It was called, He Giveth More Grace. And it goes like this. It says, He giveth more grace when the burden grows greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, He adds His mercy to multiply trials. 
has multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, our strength has failed ere the day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, the Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power knows no boundary known unto man. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Folks, that is the promise of assurance from God. I'll just cover two of them. He will protect you because he is your shepherd if you know him personally. And if he has given you grace through Christ and the hope of eternal life in heaven, he will, in fact, meet your needs because that is how much he loves you. The result of that statement is this. His provision for his children is loving and it is exhaustive. All things graciously in Christ according to the riches that come to us in Christ. Therefore, he is for every believer the end of anxiety. And when his children express supreme confidence in his provision and in his protection... He is glorified. And folks, here's what I believe. That is the heart of worship. The heart of worship is us resting in the glorious, profound, abundant provision of God that comes to our life, that we speak back to fear when Satan haunts us and tempts us to doubt the goodness of God. The Word of God is saying, I will protect you and I will provide for you. You have nothing to fear. Speak back to fear in your life. Speak back to fear in your life. Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness, Christian, in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of speaking to yourself? And what he means is the promises of God? We have a choice, Christian. We have a choice. We can listen to ourselves, the haunting thoughts, the voices the self-condemnation, the fear about the future, finances, health, retirement, our children. How are we going to meet all the needs? We can listen to all of that. You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to talk to ourselves. He wants us to do what the psalmist does in Psalm 42 and 43. He grabs himself by the scruff of the shirt, and he looks himself in the mirror, and he says, Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my hope and the lifter of my countenance. Folks, Christians should be the happiest people on planet Earth. We should not be overwhelmed with gloom. Okay, the market's going back down. It's down 7%. Okay? Any of you that have retirement accounts, you're already aware of that and troubled. But my God shall supply all your needs. So, you know, here's what you need to do. You need to take the fears and find biblical truth and speak back to the fear. As my one friend said to me, doubt the doubt. Doubt the fear. Tell Satan he is what he is. You're a liar. Because God is good. And the way that I know that is not my daily circumstances. Please understand this. The way I know that is the cross of Christ. And that hasn't changed 
But God showed his love to me. And that while I was still a rebel, Christ died for me. And the one who died for me, the greater, will take care of the lesser. So why should I live in fear? Why should I? Let's bow our heads in prayer.